Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I will be speaking to Dr. Dan Coglin, the head of strength and conditioning for the PGA Europe Tour and England Golf's national lead for sports science. Dan is a highly qualified and advanced level generalist wearing strength and conditioning, physio and sports science badges. So you're in for an interesting and insightful episode today. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the force frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the force frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to Informed Performance with me, Annie McDonald, and without further ado, here is today's episode with Dr. Dan Coglin. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for giving up some time, mate. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Just to begin with, would you be able to kind of outline your background? Because I'm, you know, I'm aware you've got uh, many hats that you wear or have worn uh, over your career. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with kind of where I'm currently at, I guess, and then sort of backtrack and maybe just explain um, roughly how I got there. Um, but so at the moment, I I'm the lead S and C coach with the um, European Tour. Um, so we've run their S&C service. I've been doing that for uh, maybe six years or so now. Um, on top of that, I run the sports science and medicine service with England Golf. Um, so that services uh, a couple of hundred uh, development players in our youth player pathways right through to our kind of elite senior amateurs before they turn into pros and go on to the European Tour. Um, I also am starting to work with the ladies European Tour now as well. So that's kind of the professional end of the female game. And then um, alongside that, I run a company called the Golf Performance Network, where we educate um, sports science and S&C and coaches around working in golf. Um, And I work with a few players one-to-one as well. So they're kind of the different roles that I have. Um, In terms of my background, so I actually started um, doing a sports science degree. I went off from that into physiotherapy, um, graduated as a physiotherapist and started working as a physio for a little while and then I got into the sort of more S&C and applied sports science later when I was sort of sampling lots of different sports so I worked in lacrosse track and field football all sorts of different things Um, and then when I eventually got my first gig in golf which was kind of a bit of an accident I suppose or it wasn't a, a sport I was particularly choosing I realized that golf asked for physios when it actually meant strength and conditioning coaches. And I think from my sort of sports science background, I recognized I probably didn't know enough about strength and conditioning, went and educated myself on it, did a PhD in it, and ultimately ended up sort of more that strength and conditioning trajectory. So I'm kind of working across all professional and amateur golf um, with a background in sports science, S&C and physio. Um, And I kind of use all those hats um, through my day-to-day roles. A very, uh, a very high-skilled generalist, by the sounds of it. I hope you don't uh, take that as a, an insult, but more a compliment. No, totally. I, I actually think um, 
it's a really important quality that is sometimes overlooked. I think at the moment, and I think there's a place for regulation, there's a place for accrediting lots of different professionals with their specialist areas. But I feel like sometimes you lose that old fashioned sports science and, um, you know, you have to be the physio or the nutritionist or the um, strength and conditioning coach or the physiologist. And I, I think it's perfectly acceptable and desirable in individual sports actually for someone to be able to do all of the things most of the time and then refer people on to specialist help when you're dealing with those complex cases that need it as opposed to all of the time because you know when in my case working in golf with individual athletes they can't travel with you know a team of 10 people around the world all the time just for their sports science I don't know about you, but I've often found that when I'm facing, say, a problem to solve as a physio, quite often I'll solve it when I start to think like a strength conditioning coach. And then when I'm working as a strength conditioning coach, quite often I'll solve a problem by thinking more like a physio. I feel like that when you've got when you've got kind of dual accreditation or, or you know triple in your situation, um, you, you can kind of uh, problem solving in more of a flexible way. Yeah, I think it's massive. Like when I when I realized that strength and conditioning was an area I needed to learn more about, you know, when I first got the golf roles and realized that I, I needed that skill set, um, I, I kind of quickly started using a lot of strength and conditioning in my clinical practice as a physio. Um, and then all the time when I'm coming up against sort of rehab cases or people looking at injury prevention and stuff like that, I'm always putting that physio hat back on and using it in the context of S&C. So yeah, I think they complement each other really well. Can you? I know you work in a couple of places, but can you tell us about your your roles within golf and kind of depending on the setup or environment, you know, who else is in the performance team and how do you kind of collaborate with who's around you in the settings that you're in? Yeah, so I guess the the most um, whole um, interdisciplinary group that I work with from a sports science and medicine perspective is within the European tour. Um, because the budget's slightly larger, you have lots of different people, um, with you when you're at events. Um, whereas in other, um, situations, it might be a smaller team. Um, so when I'm with the, uh, European tour, we have our, um, sports medics, we have our doctors, um, as well as our doctors, we also have our, um, sort of specialist consultants that come to certain events and run um, clinics. Uh, we also have skin cancer screenings there as well, because obviously golfers are out in the sun an awful lot, and that's certainly a risk factor and for and for staff as well. Um, we have sort of mental health support services on the European tour as well, and then beyond that, we also have physiotherapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, um, strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, like a whole group of people and that's just in the sort of sports science support side um as well as the sports science support we also at those events will always have the players bringing their own coaches or bringing their own support teams with them as well um and then you have to deal with you know all that other stuff around it like the the media and the um, event organizers and all sorts of different people um with england golf uh, which is one of my other roles we also have quite a good interdisciplinary team but the setup is quite different um so we'll usually i'll be the only main sports science and medicine person at the um 
training camp because the other team members will be across the country working with different people. But I'm much more integrated into the um, sort of wider coaching network with them. So we tend to have, you know, the the golf coach, the putting coach, the psychologist, the players, the managers. Um, so it's more like golfy, I suppose. Whereas the European tour, I, I tend to have just a bigger sports science and medicine team, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. I was going to ask, how do you, you know, how do you, I guess, formally or strategically structure kind of the players' technical goals or tactical goals around maybe then their physical or um, kind of sports science kind of uh, metrics? How, how do you essentially kind of, com- you know, formally collaborate with the technical coach? Because I'm guessing when you've got lots of different players and like you said, kind of everyone has a different uh, sort of team behind them. How do you get organized around that? Um, it can be quite challenging. Um, I think it's, um, yeah, it's quite a challenging one. I think ultimately you need to just have good conversations with number of people in the team. Um, so quite often when we're doing sort of physical profiling or assessment or meeting up with players, we will try and make sure the coach is there if they can be. Um, so quite often on the European tour, when we see players for the first time, the coach will be with us um, as part of that process. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not always possible. So sometimes you just have to go with your best guesses and call the coach afterwards and speak with the players. Um, I think quite often in golf, the players are very involved in that kind of technical process. So they tend to know quite a lot about what's going on as well. So the players are a huge source of knowledge for us um, in, in that process. Got you. From a from a player perspective, how do they access support and, and kind of what does that process look like for them? Yeah, so for the European tour, the players um, basically book in. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of an open service. So we go to the events and we run certain days where they could come and see us. And they'll book in through like links that we've sent them beforehand and and they'll just come and book an hour, book two hours. And there's a range of services that they can sort of book in for to give us a bit of a heads up of what that's about. So quite often they'll, um, they'll book in say an hour and they'll say, I want to do some physical profiling or two hours. I want to do some physical profiling and have a, a program. Um, but I guess once they've come in, how they use us is it, quite, um, it's quite varied. So, um, sorry, I'm not sure I've put that quite correctly. So they'll, they'll come in um, they'll book to come in and then they'll, um, have a range of different objectives that they might, um, sort of go through. So we, we tend to typically have three players, one, uh, three different groups of players once they've accessed us. So one group of players will be wanting like our full support, essentially. Another group of players will be wanting like partial support from us. And then another group of players might just want a second opinion. So the players who want full support will come in and they'll get sort of physical profiling. We'll give them a bit of a report, give them some benchmarking data compared to other players. Um, We might write them a program. We might support them at distance long term. We might sort of integrate into their coaching team and essentially become their strength and conditioning coach and sort of sports science support. Whereas for the kind of middle group of players, they might come in and they might want like a program, but they just want a program and they kind of want to be left alone. So we just profile them, give them a program, and then they don't really sort of see us again until they want a new one. Um, So it can be a bit less frequent. And then the third group of players might be working with someone um, privately 
and they just want a profiling report or maybe they're working with someone privately but they just want someone to oversee their training when they're abroad at events and their like personal support can't come with them um so those three groups of players will, will potentially use us quite differently once they've accessed the service um and they might have different degrees of contact outside or between events um, and then finally, I guess another way players might access the services is through the medical team. So um, when the doctors are working with a player or the physios, osteopaths, chiropractors, etc., um, they'll quite often get us involved in um, sort of the rehabilitation process or, um, you know, maybe some injury risk reduction strategies post rehab. Um, or they might just use kind of the the contact they've had with the player about an injury as a platform to move them into training and and support them in that way and then sort of bump them over to us for some S&C support. Yeah. Uh, let's get into some technicalities. With your, with your S&C hat on perhaps, what do you kind of assess for players or what modifiable physical qualities, you know, make a high-performance golfer? Yeah, so I think that's... Um, Good question. So we've, we've thought about it an awful lot, as you can imagine. Um, but the answer is is really very simple in terms of kind of our assessment process. So for us, um, endurance and, or cardiovascular, you know, endurance and cardiorespiratory kind of fitness isn't all that important for golf. Um, so even though they spend, you know, four or five hours on a round and they're, they're running long days, um, really their kind of CV, fitness, et cetera, is just for, you know, health, well-being, um, maybe to sort of optimize their recovery a little bit. Um, deal with jet lag, that kind of stuff. So they need a certain amount of fitness, but they don't need to be like exceptionally fit or anything like that. Um, so we're just sort of mindful that they're at a minimum level. Um, and then really it's just about strength and explosive strength for us, really. And as a result of that, um, we you know, are profiling. Um, we look at isometric mid-thigh pull uh, peak force. We look at counter-movement jump impulse, which relates to sort of how far they can hit the ball quite um, quite well. Um, and then we also look at um, DSI a little bit as well. Um, we obviously look at movement quality, but we don't go through like formal screenings and assessments because, you know, the research just isn't that strong around screening. And we tend to focus more on the individual in front of us. Um, so a player might come in and say, oh, when I, you know, when I'm in impact, my left um, foot spins out and we look at them and their left lead hip is lacking in internal rotation and we kind of help them with that, for example. Um, but that would be like a bespoke solution to a bespoke problem as opposed to a standardized screening process. Yeah. How do you, how do you navigate things like limb symmetry index through the tests that you have or, or any kind of profiling you do of athletes? Because I mean, I'm guessing there's there's variance between all golfers anyway, depending on their technique. But equally, all golfers are, you know, to some degree, they're, they're always playing one-sided. Yeah, so uh, that's an interesting question. And it's one we've not massively explored at the moment. Um, so we've seen on the ISO pull, so mainly on the ISO pull, we just look for peak force. Um, and the same on the counter movement jump, we just look at like impulse, positive impulse. Um, and we don't specifically target any asymmetry measures in either of those tests or any other tests for that matter. Um, but sometimes we do look at the data. Um, if it looks a bit like different, you know, sometimes you eyeball it and you think, hang on, there's, there's quite a substantial difference here. And then we'll look at it, report it for the player and work on it. Um, but we don't have a standardized process around symmetry. Um, at the moment, we're not 
convinced that well really there's kind of no evidence or experience experience that we've sort of gained that leads us to think that asymmetry um, or symmetry leads to changes in performance or injury risk so at the moment again we just kind of deal with it if it looks a bit funky Um, from a performance perspective we have run some numbers on some asymmetry data and we haven't seen a a relationship to hitting distance um, which is obviously the sort of most blunt and easy thing to analyze from a statistical point of view Um, unfortunately we obviously don't have like 3d biomechanics labs on tour so we can't really link the metrics to those sorts of numbers and not that many of those play of the players get sort of proper 3d biomechanical analysis um so we can't like nick their data and look at it either um so with the asymmetry at the moment i guess it's just we're, we're a bit unsure um but we don't think it's a massive problem yeah and i guess for them equally they've spent however many years playing golf and built up such a high chronic workload of being asymmetrical i'd imagine their tolerance is is generally high when they get to the level they play at yeah i think so i think so i mean like certainly from experience i i I can't recount one specific player that i've worked with out of hundreds maybe thousands where i thought asymmetry is a big issue for you um and then obviously like general training will have positive impact on it anyway um so even where we have observed asymmetry i can't say it's like drastically changed our training approach um now that might be different for other sports granted and i think there's obviously research in in other sports around asymmetry that's quite compelling but i think just in our case it hasn't been sort of one of the major areas to chase do you find then ever that like maybe higher scores on some of the force outputs that you do collect does that ever uh, correlate with you know perhaps a player's robustness like the the frequency that they get injured or i'm, I'm just kind of wondering you know what do the high scores uh, tell you? What do they align with in terms of a golfer's robustness or performance? Yeah, good question. So I suppose from our perspective, we um, we address the performance or the benefits of S&C using a probability of performance impact model that we've put together, which kind of sounds quite fancy, but it's really quite simple. It's basically at the bottom of the pyramid, i.e. the most probable thing that we're going to have an impact on and through a player engaging in sports science and S&C support is that they're going to have um, improved availability and readiness to play and perform. So they're going to get injured less. If they do get injured, they're going to bounce back quicker. They're going to get sick less. And if they do get sick, they're going to bounce back quicker. They're going to deal with like jet lag and they're going to deal with travel and the just general life of a tour player better. And they're going to be more um, less fatigued and more alert and ready to play and perform. And I think that's probably the biggest benefit in golf um, of being sort of physically fit and robust and, and training in general. Um, and then sort of second to that, we look at club head speed and how ultimately how far they can hit the ball, um, because that's quite a, a distinct performance metric, which we know has a fairly substantial impact on how much money they make and how many points they get and whether they're you know going to get what they want out of their game, I suppose. It opens up a lot of strategic options and things like that when they play. Um, and then the third and probably least probable area of impact is is us influencing their techniques so having sort of technical transfer to the sport i.e they can't achieve something with their coach and by giving them an exercise it helps them achieve that thing that they wanted to achieve and the players that we work with are, are so skilled that just that transfer process for to technique is is really difficult um so with that in mind like our 
our metrics are, are kind of largely aiming at the bottom bits of that pyramid, which is like club head speed and robustness and availability and readiness and stuff. Um, now I'm actually, I'm actually quite um, still a little bit torn on it because if we're looking at the isometric mid-thigh pull and um, the peak, um, oh, sorry, and the, the counter movement jump impulse that we look at as kind of our primary measures, um, I'm not 100% convinced that isometric mid-thigh pull and robustness go hand in hand beyond a certain point. Like, obviously, the research shows us that people who strength train have a significant, like, substantial reduction in their injury risk, especially around overuse injuries. We know, like, 80% of injuries in golf are linked into overuse. Um, so theoretically, strength training reduces overuse injuries. Therefore, the stronger you are, the less injuries you get. Um, but I don't necessarily think beyond being like a basic level of strong for golf, becoming exceptionally strong continues to reduce your injury risk. Um, so I think to a point, strength training and the result and change in your ISO pull data is an indicator that you might start being more robust and get less injuries. But I think it's only useful to a point. Um, beyond that, I think really the the ISO pull and the counter movement jump impulse are really all about club head speed and distance, um, which is where the performance advantage is for golf. And we certainly have like thresholds with that. So we we have a sort of a 10 point rating scale from like the weakest tour player we've ever measured to the to the most ex- uh, to the strongest and the the slowest to the most explosive and we can kind of say how they stack up against their peers um and we also know that you know certain amounts of club head speed uh, sorry impulse change i think it's around 40 newton seconds of positive impulse is related to about three and a half or is predi- it should result in about three and a half, um, maybe four mile an hour improvement in club speed, which is worth 10 yards off your driver, which means that you essentially use a different club into your next shot. So it's enough to make a strategic difference to how you play and perform. Um, so there's kind of a direct measure there that we can pin down into those numbers. Um, we also know that like um, neck injuries and back injuries are really common in golf. So we have... Um, so we have some four sensors that we use and we do some isometric um, peak isometric like neck strength type tests and we also do trunk ones as well so the trunk one they're in like a pal-off position as if they're doing a pal-off press but seated um, and then we have a four sensor and we just um, increase the the isometric um, force until they fail and lose position essentially and we take the peaks left and right and we do the same for the next neck in side flexion where they have to hold neutral they've got kind of a skull cap on and we pull them until the um, uh, they lose position and we look at the peak forces and is that a is that a sorry to interrupt is that a is that the gatherer system that people use kind of famously in rugby and formula one or it's like that but we don't use the gatherer system so um we just bought a force sensor and um a trx with a handle on it a couple of carabiners um and then just kind of did our own thing we we use um muscle lab as the software that we use and the guys at muscle lab were really helpful and also carl valley was really helpful in kind of get, getting a setup for that um, but we managed to do it quite a lot cheaper than Gatherer um, were quoting us. So that's why we went with our own little setup. No, sorry to interrupt. No, that's cool. And yeah, so we, we've, we've been using that for the last um, sort of year or so. And I've currently got a PhD student who's working on it to sort of see if there's a link to performance in terms of distance. But we also have this, you know, we, we kind of hypothesize that 
trunk strength and maybe asymmetry might be something we look at and neck strength might be associated with the risk of neck or back injuries alongside the iso pull which are our most common injuries Um, but there isn't really any good prospective epidemiological research in golf Um, so alongside the um, rna and the isc and the igf so um, rna is royal nh and they're like a, a huge golf organization for people who don't don't know and the igf is the international golf uh, federation um we're putting together a, a prospective injury study at the moment um so we recently published um some sort of consensus on on how to do the research in in the british journal of sports medicine and um so that's kind of in process and we're hoping to as well as looking at all the sort of self-report data and um all the kind of more holistic information we're also hoping to include those physical profiling metrics to see if there's any association between um, injury risk and those in our players just to help inform us a bit more got you are there any kind of uh non-negotiable kinetic or maybe kinematic standards that you expect or chase in players um can you give me a bit more context that question is that okay yeah of course yeah i'm just wondering is there any kind of um you know, if it's a kinetic variable, is there any kind of forces that you absolutely want all players to be able to hit? Or maybe kinematically, is there any kind of joint ranges or um, more sort of anatomical standards that you expect players to be able to hit? In different Are you tests? thinking from a like a profiling perspective and screening perspective or from like just observing a golf swing and the biomechanics of the swing or... Yeah, the, the former, the, the profiling end of it. Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, from a profiling perspective... Um, there isn't from a movement perspective, there isn't anything in particular. Um, we're, we're quite big on not, um, doing movement assessments with the players, but like I described earlier, almost like just solving the problem in front of us, because one of the amazing things about golf is that so many players have so many unique solutions to the problem of how to swing a golf club and get the ball to go where they want that there isn't really a swing, especially when we're working with players at scale and we're not associated to say one coach or one method of developing a player. So that means that the unique sort of physical attributes that a player might need or that might negatively impact their ability to swing the club how they want to are all going to be a little bit different. Um, And again, a lot of the time we don't find that there are like substantial and very uniform problems with movement that affect all players um so i think for me the the biggest movement assessment that i can do is speaking to the player looking at them swing a golf club and having a conversation with their coach and if the player feels that there's a certain problem or the coach feels that there's a certain problem or if they describe what they're trying to achieve and i see that there might be a potential problem at that point we'll kind of look to see if there's a kind of unique physical barrier that's that's impacting the transfer to performance um so from that perspective we don't have like a, a standard um now obviously we have movement standards in the gym we want them to be you know like um just hitting some basic technical models in terms of how they lift. Um, but, you know, beyond that, we don't have anything that's that's uniform. Uh, although we do look at it, like I say, in that bespoke way quite a lot. Um, in terms of the strength standards, again, we, we don't, we do, we're not in a position where we say we want you to be at a certain level of strength or we want you to be at a certain explosive strength standard. And I think the reason for that is, well, twofold. 
one um again going back to the kind of unique solutions how far you hit the ball and if that's kind of the main reason for being strong and explosive um how far you hit the ball is one performance objective out of many for a golfer so like as an snc coach it's very easy to look at a player and say i can impact how far you hit it that's the main thing i can do outside of just keeping you healthy so i'm just going to shoot for that and say these are the standards you have to hit um but the truth of the matter is that some players don't hit it so far but have phenomenal short game and they have exceptional course strategy and they play a completely different game to the person who hits it like 350 yards and who was also exceptionally at the short game and has an exceptional short game um, and strategy and, and the like but they just have a different style of playing the game and therefore like un- unlike some sports which might be determined more by a player's physiology um our sport doesn't have that and therefore it's kind of unfair to put certain standards on players i think where we are in a powerful position though is that we can tell a player how they physically stack up to the rest of the field because we work with all of the european tour players and we've profiled you know hundreds of them we can very easily say like your normal below normal above normal um, for strength or explosive strength. And therefore, this is kind of how your strength, explosive strength sort of stacks up against your peers. And therefore, theoretically, this is maybe where your weakness is, i.e. you're you're weaker than a typical tour player, but you're more explosive at the same time. So it might make more sense for you to develop strength at the moment. So our kind of 10-point scale helps us kind of guide those decisions without imposing a certain standard on the player um and then we also know once they hit a you know certain level of strength because we wouldn't just chase impulse um if they weren't like physically robust as well we wouldn't just just do impulse and never develop strength but we can also look at impulse and say well we know around 40 newton seconds is three and a half miles an hour so if you want to hit hit an extra 20 yards you need to get 80 newton seconds of impulse and theoretically as long as you can technically transfer that into your swing, that should be enough. And then that sets us a target. So again, we have standards and we have kind of an idea of how they fit together towards different goals that a player might have, but we don't have a standard that players have to hit. And I think just to kind of add to that a little bit more as well, like one of the common questions that comes up is like, how strong is strong enough for golf? Because lots of golfers are starting to try and get stronger now. And it's just a popular question in strength and conditioning, isn't it? Like strength and conditioning coaches like to ask that kind of thing. And (laughs) I think it's a trending question. It is a trending question. And I think everyone thinks it's quite like a controversial snazzy or something. And (laughs) um, I think that the truth is like, for me, in my experience, you just go past it and see that you've got strong enough now. Like I've worked with players who I've taken from two and a half thousand Newtons to 3000 Newtons on ISO pull. And I've seen a big improvement in club head speed and that was their objective. And then I've seen other players that I've taken from two and a half to 3000 Newtons who have seen no improvement in club head speed. But if you drop them below two and a half thousand Newtons on their ISO pull, they see a drop. So you're like, okay, well player a 3000 Newtons is good and they're still getting benefit let's see what happens when we take three and a half thousand they still get benefit and then player b i'm like okay well 
three and a half thousand, uh, three thousand is maybe a waste of time. Let's keep them at two thousand five hundred for a bit, not let them drop down because we know they lose club speed if that drops. And let's work on their impulse. And then if impulse stops giving us return on investment, then we can look at strength again and see if nudging that up can help us um, sort of get through any plateaus in the future. But right now we'll sideline it. So I think that kind of individual approach, again, to to sort of benchmarking, profiling, having standards, et cetera, um, is really important, especially in an individual sport, which isn't physiologically driven. Yeah. Yeah. With my um, with my appalling golf skills, uh, personally, I, I tend to inflict pain on my body in places I wasn't expecting. Um, but what are like the what are the kind of common injuries that you're getting in elite golfers? I know you alluded a little bit to um, spine based injuries, but what what are the kind of key injuries that you're seeing in the pros versus uh, weekend warriors like myself? Yeah, so um, there's not a huge amount of research on this. Um, I'll speak to experience in a, in a second, but there isn't a huge amount of research. Um, recently, uh, some of my colleagues on the European Tour published a systematic review on golf injuries. So anyone who's particularly interested in the, the research answer to, the, to this question, go and have a look. It's in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and it's um, the, the lead author was a guy called Paddy Robinson. Um, and basically, the, the conclusion of the research were that Spinal injuries, so neck, back, and thoracic spine injuries were most common. Um, wrist injuries were quite common. Hip injuries were common, um, followed by, I think, like knee and then other places after that. Um, but a lot of the research wasn't, well, none of the research was proper, like prospective epidemiological data. A lot of it was just kind of questions, questionnaires, or, you know, just um, cross sectional stuff. Um, but from experience, those are the sorts of injuries that we see neck pain back pain, um, wrist pain, and a little bit of hip pain. Um, the, the specifics of the injuries, I guess, um, generally the low back pain is one of three things, like either a persistent low back pain that obviously lots of people in the general population suffer from as well, and the players having to manage. Um, you know, being a, a sport where you can be professional for a very long time, you know, you can still be playing European tour and PGA tour for big money in your forties and fifties. You can go off and play senior tours in your sixties and seventies and still be making like great money out of it. And being a, you know, elite proper elite athlete, um, persistent low back pain is going to be one, um, neck pain. Again, it tends to be more persistent, um, just generalized sort of persistent, um, and neck pain we also see kind of just generalized kind of acute versions of both of those things as well low back and neck acute problems that aren't like overly specific or um you know like serious in nature i guess just sort of transient uh, acute episodes of of neck or back pain and just from the lifestyle i think you know like traveling and playing a sport which has huge amounts of volume to it and things like that people just have the odd the odd kind of niggles that settle with a bit of sensible management and then um, in terms of kind of more specifics around the back, with certainly the junior players coming through, we see a, a lot of um, spondies. Um, so quite often when we have a, a young player um, who has back pain, we're quite mindful of the fact that there might be you know, something going on there and we, we, we get them scanned and check it out quite often um, fairly quickly to be on the safe side. Um, and then often when you see 
MRIs from um, pros, more senior pros, you'll you'll see like a PARS or something, like an old PARS or something there because um, they might have had it when they were a junior um, or might have developed when they were a junior. Um, for wrist injuries, we see a lot of um, ECU tendinopathies or kind of similar issues around ECU. And we also see some TFCC stuff as well. Um, so they're kind of the more common ones. Um Generally, with the younger players, they seem to come more of from like technique type issues. So young players who aren't so sort of stable and strong yet can sometimes be quite wristy. Um, so they manipulate the club at the last second to to kind of get a good impact. And that can can lead to like ECU issues and stuff like that. And then obviously, you've got people hitting out bunkers and sometimes just hit a stone or something that can cause some wrist issues. Um, in the hip, so about 20% ish of a any pro field or elite amateur field of players will report some sort of hip pain if you if you you know take them through a bit of a hip questionnaire um like an iHot type questionnaire and then you ask them if they've had hip pain recently um and we see in some of those players that there are um some sort of you know like cam or pincer type um issues fai type issues um but obviously not always um symptomatic um but certainly with the fai fai stuff sometimes you see that if they have an anatomical restriction in their lead hip that can impact their technique um so sometimes identifying that can help the coach and the player work towards a slightly different technical model that can reduce their risk of um, injury potentially um so there that's the kind of the pro um group of players and the sorts of things that we look at around you know neck back wrist hip which are the most common areas and um and um with the amateurs i don't really know i don't work with any amateurs but i'd imagine it's it's fairly similar um certainly back pain i know from the research is quite common with with amateurs yeah you know rowing as a sport just to kind of cross compare has had some good uh, research between uh, the Sorensen test and back pain is there kind of any standards or tests like that that you use more specifically to profile athletes during maybe the rehab process or or maybe as a, a risk determinant for, say, back pain? Um, no, not really. Um, I think probably more than anything it's because the um, we're just in quite an early stage in golf, I think, in terms of the sort of physical support that players have had. Um, so up until very recently and still to a point now, the the standard was to do basically just like a specific a golf specific physical screening a bit like an fms for golf um which which obviously isn't a very good way of working with athletes but it tended to just be you do this kind of physical screen and then you give people a load of stretches and that was all the support they had it was kind of very physio led type support without any real strength and conditioning and the last sort of four or five years have for me, well, longer, I suppose, 10 years that I've been working in golf, but certainly over the last four or five years, well, think where the pace has been increasing. I think a lot of the research has been in developing, you know, the sort of simple methods and approaches that I've just discussed, the kind of things that you can do very kind of quickly and easily, like um, the ISO pull, the counter movement jump impulse stuff that we, we did quite early with club speaks. That was a key goal. And then just like selling the idea of just lifting weights to golfers and saying like, please listen to me you just need to squat and deadlift and do these basic things and jump with some weights and stuff you don't have to do all these silly over specialized exercises um so that's been kind of the big push recently um but now i think the next phase that we're moving into is much more around trying to understand now we've got some basic snc established 
you know, this is how you perform better as a golfer by doing this stuff. And these are the strength standards, et cetera, or like not quite, you know, standards, but you know what I mean? Like that, that trajectory, uh, that, um, range of strength or range of explosive strength and stuff and these are our principles around snc and why you should do it and we're getting players on board um i very much feel like the next step is trying to bridge the gap between snc and sports medicine and it's something that we've spoken to our our physio team um a lot with and i've got current phd student on and we've got the like i say this epidemiology study that's about to start um where we're starting to look at these kind of neck tests our trunk tests we want to look at some other back tests in the context of our tour players but also in the context of sort of general golfers as well combine it with some epidemiology study etc so i think really over the next i hope over the next sort of five to ten years the where the knowledge needs to grow really in terms of general sports science medicine support for golf around the physical preparation is is going to be understanding that link better Mm -hmm. if we were to kind of move away from what the the current research base says and what you can and currently do or, or practically implement if we were to kind of go more you know blue sky thinking what would you idealistically like to be able to maybe um profile monitor implement with golfers over time i'm just wondering like um in an ideal world what would uh you know what would your system and setup kind of look like with golfing yeah so i think well so first off i think we do want to continue to keep it quite simple so one thing that me and the team have been very big on is introducing new things very slowly but being very confident in what we introduce i think sometimes the there can be a temptation to do lots of things because lots of things are available but not really know much about any of them but just think they're all a good idea and then you just end up with like this mess of stuff and then you just change it all the time and it becomes quite unstable and every time the athletes come in, they get a new test and it, it becomes a bit sort of silly. Um, so what we've tried to do very, very slowly is like with the isopull and CMJ impulse, for example, we we thought about that and we implemented it and then we or and then we sorry researched it. We did some cross-sectional stuff, we did some interventional stuff, we tried to really understand like, is this worth including? And then we thought about it in the context of our environment and what we had access to because we're on the road all the time. And when we eventually decided those are the two tests we we're going to introduce, we introduced them. And now we're really sort of comfortable with them and we think that they're going to be there for a long time and they're probably not going to need to change a great deal. And now we can move on to the next thing. So I think I will get to try and to answer your question. I won't just kind of leave it with, so I'm not <laughs> going to do anything, but like, um, so we are going to try and introduce things slowly. And I think we are very comfortable with the idea that we don't necessarily use a huge amount. Um, and I actually think in a lot of cases, having good conversations with players, coaches and their support team and just doing a good job as a coach is like way more important than physical profiling. Um, sometimes physical profiling can help guide you a little bit and it can work as a bit of an outcome measure to things. But again, just listening and having good conversations and understanding what the team objectives are and just being a really good holistic, you know, biopsychosocial type coach it is is the most important thing beyond what te- you know you could take all my testing away from me i would be much happier than if you took my ability to to be kind of more holistic in my approach and um work with other members of the team and stuff but beyond that i guess what we would like we've now got um 
you know, our generalized strength measure. We've got our lower limb explosive strength measure that's related to distance. We need some sort of upper limb high velocity type measurement um, because, you know, the upper limb strength is probably less important than upper limb sort of high velocity type measures in terms of distance because obviously the arms and trunk and stuff move incredibly quickly, um, whereas the the lower limb has more time to produce force. Um, so we've, we've spoken about doing like uh, bench throws with, um, you know, like a, an accelerometer or something on. We've spoken about using like med balls for throws, but with an accelerometer into the med ball, something like that. But we need a high velocity type exercise in the upper limbs. Um, the next thing that we need to develop is like our injury risk reduction type assessment battery, um, which I think will include some sort of neck assessment, some sort of trunk back type assessment. And it would be nice to have some sort of wrist assessment because you get those ECU overuse injuries and things. Um, but then I think beyond that, because that's quite reductionist saying, oh, let's look at the wrist, let's look at the neck, let's look at the back in these kind of isolated, uncontextualized tests. Um, I think the other thing that we would be really nice would be to have a really robust biomechanical measurement system for the you know golf swing. I think at the moment, a lot of the portable biomechanics equipment is getting there, but it's not quite what we were, where we want it to be. And a lot of the like real super flashy stuff like your Vicon, work that you can do is in labs and we're a traveling um you know tour we go to different countries every week and we can't pop up a a vicon lab everywhere um but i think in an ideal world having some sort of hardcore you know motion capture system um to look at the swing would probably be the most important thing or one of the most important things and then we could start to as well from the research perspective start to tie in those tests with um the biomechanical data we're getting from the from the system alongside the injury data that we're getting from the colleagues that we work with. Um, and I think that would be quite a pl- powerful position to be in. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, a very well thought out futuristic answer there. So I appreciate that. And I think it's, it just provides a lot of interesting uh, context as to like what you do and what you could do as well um, for people that are out there that work with golfers. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, where's the best place for people to find you? I'm just aware of time. Um, yeah. So um Probably Instagram, Twitter, it's just at Dr. Dan Coglan. Um, I've got a website, which is dancoglan.com. So you can jump on there um, or you can email me at dan at dancoglan.com. Brilliant. Well, well, we'll link out to that in the show notes. But Dan, thanks for coming on, mate. I've, I, I learned a lot from you then. And just as an aspiring golfer alone, I just enjoyed geeking out, listening to you talk about golf. So um, yeah, thank you for your time, mate. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thank you, Andrew. Big thanks to Dan for coming on today's show and being so detailed and transparent, explaining what he does, how he does it, and also providing us with so much practical context. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Informed Performance Podcast. If you want show notes, previous episodes, or even articles, then head over to our site, informedperformance.com. You've been listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Tune in next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.